Welcome to Pet Will Radio, a unique show about amazing animals and inspirational people. With your host, author, animal advocate, and attorney, Peggy Hoyt. Hello and welcome. You are listening to All My Children Wear Fur Coats on Pet Will Radio. This show is brought to you by the law offices of Hoyt and Brian and MyPetWill.com. I'm your host, Peggy Hoyt. It's my pleasure to be with you. Each show, when we get together on Mondays at 3, we are looking at options and alternatives for creating lasting legacies for our pets. In addition, we get the opportunity to talk to lots of interesting special guests, and today is no exception. Today, we are talking to special guest Daryl Payne. He's a dog trainer with Pawfection Dog Training, located here in Central Florida. Welcome, Daryl. I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thanks, Peggy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, Daryl, you don't sound like you're from Central Florida. Where are you from? Well, Texas originally. No, I'm not really. I'm from London originally. Um, we moved down to the, the coast of England um, about five years before we moved out to the States. <clears throat> I was out in Texas for a couple of years, um, but then back to England, we ping-ponged a little bit for my job, and then I retired in 2009, and we came out to Florida. So okay, we, uh, so is that when you yeah, took up dog training? Uh, no, goodness no. I've been training dogs for a lot longer than that. Um I was, a, I was a police canine in England uh, for many, many years. Um, I actually joined the police to become a dog handler. Um, I didn't actually like being a cop very much at all, all the domestic arguments and traffic matters and stuff like that. I actually joined to, to handle dogs. So as soon as I possibly could, I joined the canine unit, and um, I spent most of my career there finishing up. I went through patrol dogs, um, narcotics dogs, um, cadaver dogs. Um, I became a supervisor, and um, but I still had my own dog to work as well. And then um, I ended up as the the supervisor of the bomb detection unit in London, with 62 bomb dogs under my command and my own dog as well. Um, we were doing 100,000 live searches for bombs a year in the capital there, um, and about probably 15 15 years ago. Um, I started to train pet dogs as well. Um, I, a lot of people would approach me and ask me to help them with their dog. And so um, what started off as um, almost a hobby really became a business very quickly. And so when I retired, um, I continued doing what I, what I love to do. And we came out and brought Perfection Dog Training out here. And um, it really went from strength to strength. That that's really incredible. So I have a question that a lot of people probably ask you: Is it the dogs that need training, or the people? Yes, it is the dogs and the people. Um, <laughs> we have a slogan actually on the back of my T-shirt. You'll see it actually says, "We train both ends of the leash." Oh, it's good. Very true. We do. We do. We train both ends because we they they both have to learn. Um, and if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say it's probably seventy percent human. 30% dog. I train the human and then we train the dog together. Okay. I like to think that there's no such thing as a bad dog. No, I think, um, I think there's a lot of bad humans. Um, and I think that really the most important time in the dog's life is that first year. And so, you know, when I, when I go to in-home sessions and I'm dealing with behavioral issues, a lot of it is coming from the fact that these are rescue dogs. And 
people have made mistakes, um, either either not not deliberately sometimes, but sometimes deliberately along the way in that first year of the dog's life, and that really has shaped the behaviour of the dog later on. And so dogs become fearful, they become aggressive. Um, I think of a puppy as a, a blank canvas, and if you do everything right, you draw an incredible picture and then colour it in exactly the way you want it, and you've got a masterpiece you can enjoy for the rest of its life. Um, when you get a rescue dog, someone else has done that picture for you, and it might not be quite the picture that you would have drawn. Um, so really, um, that first year of a dog's life is, is very, very important, and it's the humans that mess it up. Yes, that is true. And I know that a lot of people like to get older dogs because they feel like, well, maybe they already have that puppy training out of the way, but that can be a um, a misnomer sometimes, especially since a lot of dogs seem to be given up to shelters at that, you know, somewhere between eight months and a year and a half of age. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, eight months, what happens is the dog becomes a teenager. Um, and when they become teenagers, they start to push the boundaries. And when that happens... Um, rather than getting training uh, or advice, people give the dog up. And that's, that's why most dogs at around eight months to ten months get given up. And that is really the age of, um, of a lot of the rescue dogs. And it's a shame because I think if there was more education given early on and expectations were managed uh, with people when they have a puppy, then it would be a lot easier when the dog does start to show some behavioural issues um, that people will be able to deal with that um, far better. I think when they don't know what they're getting, suddenly the dog starts to play up at eight, eight to ten months old um, and the first thing they do is give the dog up. And that's a great shame because I think we're failing, we're failing the dog. There needs to be more education at the, at the outset because um, people will get the wrong dog will have a fairly sedentary family who get a very high-energy dog. And now suddenly they can't, uh, can't control the dog or they can't satisfy the dog's needs. Um, and as such, you know, they end up giving the dog up. And the dog loses in the end. Or we've got a very high-energy uh, high family with a very docile dog. And so the dog just let, gets left at home. So I really think it needs um, expectations need to be managed and education early on is the best thing. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with you there. So what are some of the most common um, training issues you would say that you see? Um, it really falls, misbehavior falls into two categories for me. Um, it's either caused by boredom, um, and that's where we've got a high-energy dog that really needs a lot of, a lot of work, and um, it isn't getting what it needs. So if a dog's bored, it's going to find things to do um, for itself. And that's normally the things we don't want it to do. So it will be chewing, it will be digging, um, it will want attention all the time, so it will be jumping on people all the time, that kind of stuff. The other, the other cause of misbehavior um, in the home is what they perceive to be a lack of leadership. So dogs need leaders. In the wild, the pack is led by the most dominant, the alpha, and they run the show, and they give not just direction and discipline to the rest of the, the pack, but they give it a sense of safety. So our dogs are looking for a good, strong leadership figure. Not, uh, not a, we're not talking about abuse or um, someone, uh, someone having to scream at the dog all the time, just a good, steady figure that provides leadership and therefore safety for the dog. 
we put our human values onto our dog. So what happens is we treat them perhaps as, as we would our children. We, our, our natural instinct as human beings is to reassure and that kind of thing, um, speak very softly. And sometimes dogs can take that as weakness. And if they feel that there's a weak leadership, they'll take over that leadership and start to fill the void. And they're, they're really trying to do a job that they're not very good at. And that leads to things like fear aggression and territorial aggression and things like that. Okay, so so how how do you propose, let's say that I'm a person that just adopted my first puppy and the puppy's about four months old and um, and let's say it's a good match. So I'm a high energy person. I have a high energy dog. What are the first things that I should do being the brand new owner of this four month old puppy? <clears throat> well, um, four months will be quite old. For, for a puppy, four months is, is fairly old. Normally about two months they would come away. Um, so in that other two months, I find that puppies that come away from the, own, uh, from the breeders, if we're talking about a breeder, um, if they come away from a breeders at, f at four months old, um, there's often some problems there. Either they, um, they're not sure about humans because they've been with dogs the whole time, or they're not sure about dogs because they've been, been with humans all the time and there hasn't been a lot of socialization. But let's assume that everything's fine. The first thing um, to do is the potty training, obviously. We have to get a good regime going for potty training, which means that um, every hour the dog goes outside, the same door, same part of the, of the back garden. Um, I really favor a fenced-in back garden because you know, it gives you so much more flexibility and the dog so much more freedom. Um, it's very difficult to potty train when you don't have fencing. Um, so same door uh, to the same part of the, of the backyard. That teaches the dog where it goes to the bathroom. Uh, I'm really not a fan of potty pads because it really teaches them to go inside. Then mm -hmm. as the dog starts to grow up, then it goes from perhaps once every hour to once every hour and a half and then two hours. Um, feeding is important. So feeding twice a day is the best option. Three times is a little bit too much. Um, the dog's processing food pretty much all day. So feeding once in the morning, once in the evening. Um, they feed in the morning. That process is through their body until the evening. They, go, uh, they feed again in the evening. That pushes the morning food out. That evening food then goes through the night. They feed again in the morning, and then that, uh, that previous evening food comes out as well. So you get a nice little rotation going on there. Very important for the larger breeds. Um, Great Danes, Boxers, German Shepherds who can suffer from bloat, uh, stomach torsion, sometimes called GDV, where the stomach will flip if they eat too much, too fast, um, or if they, uh, they jump around after, after eating. So a good regime for eating, uh, feeding rather, and also for, for pottying. The other thing is socialization and play. Socialization is super important for puppies, um, and not just meeting one or two other dogs or meeting a couple of people, a couple of neighbors. There's two types of socialization, people and, and animals. So they go to you know, a training session somewhere where they can get some free play. Um, you know, the, the big supermarket places, they tend to be in the store, in a small kind of box area where they sit and talk to you and sell you things as opposed to actually the pups playing together. So there's somewhere where they can have a free play. Um, that gets them used to their, their other, other dogs of different breeds, different sizes, about the same age. Uh, they learn their dog manners there. They get to meet people. So 
taking them uh, taking them out to meet other people crosses the boundaries then with the other kind of socialization which is environmental environmental socialization is where um they get used to their world taking them out to you know if you're going to go to starbucks sit outside starbucks have a coffee you know, let the dog see the, the world go by, take him down to a train station, let him see a train come through, um, that kind of thing. Everything that perhaps they would, wouldn't see normally and maybe never see again, but the more they see in that first year of their life, the more confident they are later on. So socialisation, potty training, and then play, building up a play drive with dogs. What I find a lot with the, um, the uh, rescue dogs is that where they've been really just neglected or left because life has taken over or they just weren't ready for this dog. They don't really know how to play. They're not born with this uh, inert drive to play. So teaching them how to play, throw a ball for them, let them chase it, that kind of thing. Make one of the toys a special toy. Build up that play drive because that really helps with training later on. So that sounds like a lot of fun for the dog, too. So training cannot, it's not just work. It can be fun because it includes both that socialization and play. Absolutely. It should be fun. I mean, there's two ways to get a dog to do anything. There's coercion and there's compulsion. And we, re- we would really rather have coercion than compelling a dog to do something. So giving it a reward for doing something is preferable to making it do something. Now, there's going to be times where, you know, a reward isn't sufficient and the dog has to be made to do it. So with a recall, uh, what I suggest normally with people, because the recall is the most difficult thing. Um, in my experience, when I go to people's houses, they say, oh, and the dog won't come back to me. Um, and really, when we look at the problem, it's because they're, they're calling the dog away from something it wants to do. So if the dog's digging a, a nice big hole in the back garden, they're having a great time. They're finding bugs. They're finding the water source for the, for the irrigation, and, and they're interested. And then we immediately call them away. Hey, buddy, come. Well, why would that dog want to come back to us? Because we're calling them away from something that they want to do for really nothing in, uh, as a reward. If I'm eating chocolate and you call me, you better have better chocolate than I've got or I'm not going to come back. <laughs> right. So, and I wouldn't suggest giving the dog chocolate, of course. Right. Um, but, but we have to give them a reason. So making, especially in the early days, if you have a puppy, making the recall a fun exercise, making it something where you may uh, take a treat, someone hold the dog, you run off into another part of the backyard and just hide behind a corner and then call the dog. You know, buddy, come. He comes running around, he gets his treat. Uh, or just praise. Not all dogs are treat motivated or his toy. So you make it a game, and what we're doing in, this, in the same, uh, same vein is we are conditioning the dog to come back because it's a good thing. Now, some dogs won't do that, and if that's the case, then fine, the dog's being belligerent and it won't come back. Then we put a line on them and, and we call them. If they don't come back, we'll give them a little tug on the line so they have to come back. We don't drag them across like we're marlin fishing. Right. But, um, just a little tap in the right direction until they come back so they know that they can't push those boundaries and that is again going back to the teenage that's something which you start to experience at eight to ten months where it's like we go through the honeymoon puppy stage where the dog comes back and then suddenly they become a teenager and now it's like well no i'm not coming back in which case then compulsion takes over but we try coercion first 
That's funny because I, I mentioned to you before we started the show that I have a, a puppy and um, she's in that teenage stage right now and she will come to me, but she won't let me catch her. You know, she does that. She comes, but then she ducks away just as you're about to get her. Um, yeah, so, so channeling her, get, get a line on her and say, call her. So when she starts to duck away, you can guide her back to you and then give her a treat so she knows, okay, A, I have no option to, to duck away. And B, I'm going to get a treat as well. The ducking away is almost sometimes like um, trying to promote a game. She wants you to chase her. It's yep. like, yeah, this is a great game. And that's, and that's a disaster. Playing with dogs, you don't want to play the keep away game um, because they'll start to steal things of yours and then run off hoping that you're going to chase them. They know if they pick your cell phone up, you're going to chase them around um, all day long until you get a cell phone back. So they tend to ignore their own toys and pick things up that they're going to get a, uh, a reaction for. Sure. And why not? That, that makes it fun for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that reminds me of I have a large uh, Labrador Husky mix. And um, he knows that when he has something that you don't want him to have, he will definitely run away from you. And um, yeah. I have to say that a, a poor baby bunny went for a a horrific ride around my yard when he was running away from me and I'm trying to get it from him. Fortunately, yeah, there's a happy ending to that story because he didn't hurt the Good. bunny and I was able to get it away from him. Thank goodness for that. And they don't, and see, a lot of dogs won't hurt small animals. My, my boxer, uh, we had a boxer before and, um, and her, her best friend was a, was a rabbit. We had a rabbit and we'd say, this is when we were in England, first of all, the, uh, you'd see the rabbit run across and the dog chasing the rabbit. And then two minutes later, coming back past the back doors would be the dog running and the rabbit chasing it. Um, <laughs> but she, she loved to play with the rabbit. Yeah, that that's a terrific story. So um, I'm at your website um, called perfectiondogtraining.com, and it's a play on words. It's P-A-W-F-E-C-T-I-O-N, dogtraining.com, pawfection. And... Um, under your frequently asked questions, one of the things that I notice is that you have um, you have a reputation for being able to fix some uh, b- behavior problems in a two-hour training session. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um, it comes down to really comes down to experience. Um, unfortunately, this industry is not regulated, and so it's become the norm here, uh, not just here in England as well, anybody can become a dog trainer. There is no regulation. Um, they've just started to bring some in down in Tampa. Um, a bill has just been passed down there uh, with Hillsborough County where they're actually bringing in some, some rules and regulations regarding dog training. Uh, but generally across, across the states, um, there's no regulation. So anyone can put a magnet on their car and decide, okay, I've watched three seasons of, C- of Cesar Milan, I'm now a dog trainer, and they'll then charge people to train their dogs. And the cute practice has become to you know, book somebody up for 10 sessions. So, okay, Peggy, for the next 10 weeks, I'll be over every Thursday at uh, 6 o'clock, and it's going to be $100 a session, but that's what you need to get your dog where it needs to be. And, and then now you're, you're out $1,000 before we start. Um, then at the end of 10 sessions, we're not where we want to be. So it's, well, it's, it's yours and the dog's fault. So we really need another 10 sessions. Now you're out $2,000. And now because you're into it so much, it's like, well, I've spent this much money and it, this is my fault because they're telling me it is. 
you know, I, I need to continue this. So it's it's a it's a way of milking people for money. So looking at this, and it's something which I, I first noticed in the UK, it's not necessary to have 10 sessions. For behavioral problems, it can be done in one session because I'm training you and the dog. And it's better for me to come over, identify the problem. That's where the experience really comes in, to be able to identify accurately the, the problem that's going on, the reason for that problem, the root cause. A dog that's peeing in the house that's three years old, um, that's not a bladder problem. That's a leadership problem. So if you fix the leadership, you fix the, the root cause, you fix the symptom, which is the peeing in the house. So I go over, we talk through, I, I normally take a PowerPoint with me, which explains everything in, in pictures and video and stuff like that. It takes about half an hour. But that is training the human being. Okay, these are your dog's needs. We cover food, we cover leadership, um, and entertainment. So all the, the main factors for misbehavior. And we go through that, we identify the problem, find the solution to the problem depending on that dog, because every dog is different. So depending on the, on the dog, we find the solution to that problem. I train the, we, we fix, like say it's jumping up. We identify, okay, the dog's jumping up. It's overexcited, it's not aggressive, it's overexcited. So uh, we use a correction for that, which I'm sure we'll come to in a bit. Um, a correction for that, the dog's now not jumping. I then give the owner some homework to do over the next couple of weeks. And as long as the owner does the homework, then that problem will be gone. So it's giving the person the tools to actually uh, fix the problem. So I, I identify the problem, identify the solution to the problem, train the owner in the application of that solution, and then leave them some homework. And then I'm there um, just at the end of the phone if they need me, or I'll go back if they need me uh, to keep them on track with their dog. But I very, very rarely get called back anywhere. And it's normally life's taken over and they've forgotten what to do. But there's no need for multiple sessions. That one session, the, the vast majority of people are highly intelligent people. They've looked for, they've reached out for help. All they need is the instructional book. It's like getting IKEA furniture. This is the, the, if the information, the instruction booklet that comes with IKEA furniture. If you just got the furniture, you'd never know what to do and you'd build all sorts of things and none of it would be right. Mm -hmm. But if I came over with the manual and said, there you go, Peggy, there's the manual. You know, a couple of hours, we'll talk through what you need to do and then I'm going to leave you to build that furniture. You'd be able to do it, no problem, because now you've got the directions. So it really does fall to the owner to do their homework because you can't just, let's say, I can't just drop a dog off with you. You can train it and it'll listen to you. But if I don't do the homework and I don't do the work on my part, it's not going to behave the same way for me. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the problem with like board and train. Another thing that's very popular um, is sending the dog away from training. Well, I, ha I have a rule, and actually I think it's in the new regulations in Tampa as well, that the dog should not be trained outside of the sight of the owner. Um, I would never train a dog out of the view of the owner because I want you to see what I'm doing. I want you to trust what I'm doing is not abusive for a start, but I want you to know what I'm doing so you can do it too. When you send your dog away, you don't know what's happening to that dog. You know, I've known of instances where um, trainers have taken a dog to their facility, which turned out to be a, a one-bedroom apartment with a, crate, uh, with a crate in it. And the dog spent two weeks in a crate with a shock collar on. And every time he did something wrong, they'd crank the collar right up and, and, and shock the dog to pieces. Um, and it would come back a broken wreck. 
um, you, you should know what's happening to your dog at all times, and you should know how to deal with it. Even if you sent it to a reputable place, at the end of the day, I could take anyone's dog, really, and in 10 minutes having, doing, having it do what I want it to do for me, but when I go back to you, you need to know how I've done that, but also you need to do it as well. So, you know, it's the board and train, really, you're better off having someone come to the house. And that's where the, if it's behavioural, the dog is going to act differently in your house than it does in my facility. Mm-hmm. When it comes away from the home, it acts differently. So I need to see the dog in the environment that it lives, in the environment that its, it's pack lives as well, and see the, the dynamics um, of the pack in situ. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if, with any training... Um, if if the person doesn't do the homework, even if you're doing 10 sessions, if you do no homework in between, then you're not going to move on. Our group sessions on a Saturday, you know, we say to people, we give you the tools each. Each Saturday, we give you the tools for the new, the new thing you've learned. If you don't practice it during the week, really it's going to take you a long time to move on if we're only doing this for an hour a week. But if you practice during the week, it solidifies it, um, and those, those new skills come a lot quicker. So um, this is making me wonder whether you train teenagers as well. Well, I have an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old, and if you met them, you'd realize I don't. (laughs) (laughs) They're pretty good at training parents most of the time, I think. Actually, the kids are great. They really are. But it's, it's a lot easier to train dogs than it is teenagers, that's for sure. Okay. Now, how many dogs do you have, Daryl? Now, this is going to surprise you. How many do you think I have? Mm, Three. Yeah, everyone thinks that trainers all have a lot of dogs. I don't have any at the moment. I don't have a single dog. Um, oh, my gosh. I'll tell you why, because I know we lost our boxer um, just a little while ago uh, to cancer. And she was my daughter's hearing dog. Uh, she, was, um, she used to do therapy work with us. We went, she did three Caribbean cruises, this dog. Uh, she went absolutely everywhere with us, and she was an absolute ambassador for, for the dog world. She was incredible. Um, and we lost her just a little while ago to cancer. Mm-hmm. And I really haven't, well, there's two things. I haven't been able to, to get another dog just yet because, you know, I miss her terribly, um, as does my daughter. But at the moment, I'm so busy, and this comes back to sort of the right environment, I'm so busy at the moment that I leave the house at 7 o'clock in the morning. I get home at 8, 9 o'clock at night. And that's not an environment conducive to having a dog, be it a rescue or a puppy or a puppy rescue. So at the moment, because um, I'm, I'm working with airlines for um, an airline safety program, uh, we have a huge therapy program running. Um, I've got search dogs um, out at the moment uh, that we're training. So... It's so busy at the moment, it would be unfair for me to have a dog. And, in fairness, we will be the worst behaved dog in the world, and it would be like a plumber with a dripping faucet. Um, so once things calm down and settle down, then uh, I, have my, I have my eye on the, um, the French bulldog. Oh. She's like a mini boxer. Yeah. I do like the Frenchies. They're a lovely little dog. So I have my, I have my eye on that as my next, uh, my next one. Okay. Well, that's good to hear because that's good advice to people who think they might want a dog but don't really have the time for a dog. That's right. And I'm I'm very lucky. I get my fill of dogs. I mean, my whole life has been dogs. um, This is the first time in 53 years that actually I, I haven't had a dog in the house. But I see probably 150 
dogs on a Saturday. Um, and I see about 30 dogs through the week. So close on to 200 dogs a, a week that I'm um, I'm interacting with and playing with and training. Um, so I get my... I couldn't live without dogs around me. Um, it's just it would be unfair to have one as a as a, a, a pet at home at the moment. Sure, sure. I understand. Well, I'm a bit of a hoarder, I have to admit. I have uh, six dogs. And, um, that is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Um, everyone has a special place in my heart. Two of them are here at the office with me right now. And uh, those, I guess, are the lucky two who get to be with me all day long. Um, right. While the other ones are waiting at home patiently for Daddy to get home from work. And it's nice. Well, if you get over three dogs, then they, they can become a bit of a pack. So it's nice to have them separated out. And the important thing, with even with two dogs is to have some time to spend individually with each one. Um, if you have to, say someone gets two puppies, it's very tempting just to leave the two pups playing together and you know, look, you know, looking out for each other and, you know, oh, look, they're busy and all the rest of it. Um, but if something were to happen to one of those dogs, the other one would be absolutely devastated. And there's a danger that you become just the person that feeds them. So having taken some time out to spend some one-on-one time with each of the dogs individually is really important because we want that bond between the human and the dog, not just all the dogs together. So having those two in the office with you is is nice because um, it gives them some time out from from the others as well, and some time you know with you and some great socialisation. And that is absolutely correct, and I and I am happy for them for both of those things. Um, but I want to go back to something you said earlier about getting two puppies. I uh, will say that I made a mistake at one time. I got two sister puppies, and um, did not do what you said by having individual time with those dogs. And um, honestly, for the almost eight years that they lived. Um, they were the biggest problems that I had. Um, they both had health issues for one thing, but secondarily, they were so bonded to one another that they caused all kinds of problems within my pack. Yeah, and that's the case. <clears throat> it can also, um, it can go the other way where they're not bonded together. Two females can be quite, quite a challenge. Oh, they were, and I yeah. will. I will go on record saying I will never get two sister dogs ever again. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, it's very difficult. I, I would never recommend getting two puppies at the same time. Um, it doubles it doubles the trouble. Um, you're better off getting one dog, bonding with that dog for say at least a year, get it through that teenage time, get it to where you want it, give it training, do everything right, socialisation, have a nice, confident, well-mannered dog, and then bring a puppy in, because then it's got company. But also, you've established the bond already. And the good habits will go down the line to the younger dog, and actually the older dog will train the younger dog for you to many, to, you know, to a great extent. Um, so that's a that's a great uh, great way of doing it if you want two dogs. I rarely recommend that someone has two puppies at the same time, and especially of the same sex. Male and female is is often a better match uh, than two females or two males. Okay, that's good advice for for people to have. Um, I was hosting a Christmas party the other night and one of the gals that came to the party worked with a local uh, dog rescue and I was indicating to her that I would be willing to be one of their fosters and the comment she made to me and I 
just was hoping maybe you could comment on this was that she says, well, we'll probably need you because um, at Christmas time, a lot of people give up their old dogs to get a new puppy. Yeah. Do you know, in, um, in England, they won't sell you a puppy and they won't give you a rescue dog um, over the Christmas period. And that is about a month before Christmas and a month after Christmas. You cannot get a dog over the Christmas period because we're seduced by movies where the cute Labrador puppy comes out of the parcel in front of the Christmas tree to the smiling blonde children um, and the golden family and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's selling, uh, selling the dream, if you like. The reality, of course, as we know, is, is something completely different where the, the dog's now peeing on the floor and destroying the Christmas tree and everything else. Um, so you can't get a puppy any time over Christmas. And I think that's something which really would, would be good here as well. Um, aside from the fact that I think the breeding, um, breeding of puppies needs to be far more seriously regulated um, because that's the cause of most shelters being full of rescue dogs. But I've no doubt, yeah, the, the young puppy comes in and people discard the old dog um, and they either kick it out and it has to fend for itself, or they'll drop it off at the on the highway, or they'll surrender it in and pretend it's just wandered into their house. Um, and in all honesty, you know, we have to look at the the kind of person that would do that, um, which makes you wonder if perhaps we should be looking at perhaps a dog license. You have to have some checks before you you own a gun. You know, I'm I'm a big big advocate of the fact that somebody who has perhaps a felony rap sheet perhaps shouldn't be allowed to have certain breeds of dogs because they can be turned into weapons. And the only thing that suffers is the dog because that's the thing that's going to get euthanized when it all goes wrong. So I have no doubt that, yeah, people, people give up the old dog because the pup becomes the, um, the, the, new, uh, the new shiny present. And it comes back to that managing expectations, doesn't it, and the education, that if you're going to get a puppy, it should be, okay, well, let's, let's look at your home circumstances. You know, you've got the old dog here. How's the old dog going to get on with that? I brought a puppy boxer in um, to a 10-year-old German Shepherd. My my old police dog um, was 10 when we got the puppy. And um, actually, it made him a lot younger. And sure. that was the thing that I knew would happen. So, you know, he he would look like he was on death's door at 10 years old. He went on and lived till he was nearly 15 because the puppy made him a young man again. So... You know, it's it's about the people, and again, about education. That is so true, and and I love that you say that because I tell people that all the time when when they have an older dog, and you know, they say, "Well, I have an old dog, but I can't get another dog until this one's gone." And I say, "Oh my goodness, do yourself a favor, get the puppy while you have the old dog, and your training time will be cut in half because your Absolutely. old dog will absolutely help train your puppy." Yeah, and then the old dog will put the puppy in its place as well, um, so it learns not to be a bully amongst other dogs, and you know uh, that's that's all part of it. Remember when we take these pups away from um, their their parents at eight weeks old, um, they're missing out on a lot of things that they would learn in the litter as part of a pack. They would learn their dog manners, you know, this playing, the jumping up and biting and things like that. This is all part of the learning process for them. And what they're trying to do when they're, you know, the, the Labrador puppy is jumping and biting our two-year-old children, um, it's just trying to play with the kids like it would its other puppies. 
So he doesn't understand that. So having another dog around can really help to teach the puppies manners early on. Such good advice. I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to All My Children Wear Fur Coats on Pet Will Radio. You can find us on Facebook and you can also find us on Twitter. On Twitter, we're at Kids in Fur Coats. And you can also listen live at MixLR.com forward slash Pet Will. I'm your host, Peggy Hoyt. Today we are talking with Daryl Payne. He is a dog trainer with PawfectionDogTraining.com. He's giving us some great advice about um, training dogs and training people and all of the different methods that are available. Daryl, talk to us a little bit about whether we should do group or individual training. Well, group and individual training are like a hand in a glove. They're very uh, separate, but they fit well together. Um, the, if you, it depends on the problems you're having. If it's a problem with leadership, so the dog is jumping on people, running out of the front door, stealing food, that kind of thing, then the in-home training, the, the individual training is the important one because, as we spoke about earlier, it's important for the dog uh, to be in its, its uh, comfortable environment so the trainer sees the dog exactly as it is. Um, if you brought a dog to group training, it's not going to fix the jumping up and the biting of the kids and the running out of your front door and things like that. Equally, if you have a dog that is fine at home, uh, but he's pulling on a leash and, you know, lacks manners on the leash, then the group training is the best thing. Um, Many, many people start with perhaps the the in-home training um, and end up doing the group. Uh, some people do the group and end up with the in-home training. What, what I do say is that if a dog has dog aggression problems, we do the in-home first. So we identify the solution to that problem uh, so that when the dog comes to the group and can be then around other dogs for, you know, to practice, the, do- the owner has the confidence to be able to stop the dog from reacting to the other dogs. Otherwise, it would be a miserable existence. Um, some people come to the group training because they just want something fun to do on a Saturday morning, and we mix obedience with agility. Uh, the reason we do that is because you go beyond about 15 minutes of obedience, and the dog starts to go flat. They get a bit bored with that. Um, so we mix in the agility, so it picks the dog up. They have fun. If you just do agility, the dog tends to be a lunatic. Uh, so it needs the discipline as well. So by mixing the two together, the dog learns to, be, to switch on and switch off. So it really depends, going back to your question, uh, what the problems are. If they're behavioral problems, then the the in-home session, and then sometimes supported by the group training if you need to be around people and other dogs. If the problem is just um, an obedience issue, then the group training would be great. Okay. So, and it sounds like uh, the owners have as much fun as the dogs do at the obedience and agility training type classes. They do. You know, I've, I've got a couple of, of people there, a few actually, who have been with me for seven years. Uh, I've actually watched their dogs grow old. Um, now, they don't need to be there. They just love being there. Um, it's their Saturday. They come down and they know for an hour. The, the, and the dogs know exactly what to do. The dogs are all off-leash. It's, you know, it's off-leash obedience. They're early class, off-leash obedience, agility. They've got incredible control over their dogs, but they have such good fun that I can't get rid of them. And, um, but, you know, they, they just, they come, they keep coming. Um, I've seen their kids grow up. Um, 
but it is it's a social event to my mind if you're not having fun you're not learning uh, and that's not just the dog that's the owner as well so we make it fun we make it light um we want you to enjoy yourself we want you to learn and we want the dog to learn but we want you to enjoy yourself because if you don't enjoy yourself you're not going to learn anything Sure. It does have to be fun, of course. So, Daryl, you mentioned that um, you do some types of search and rescue training. Is that right? It's search training, yeah. We don't do the search and rescue. It's too okay. um, too time-consuming. Um, and actually, having the areas to use for search and rescue, Florida doesn't really lend itself to it. Um, that's more the domain of... Sort of um, up in Colorado and places like that. But search training, certainly. Um, it's something which uh, I've been doing for many years, say, with the bomb work. Um, I've had dogs look for missing people, for criminals who have gone to ground after a, um, a robbery or a burglary. Um, I've had dogs that look for narcotics, dogs that will look for, uh, for bombs. So searching is something which um, has been with me for many, many years. Um, and is a particular skill set of mine, which I, I wanted to to use for good here. So we set up a, a search program, which they they come on a Wednesday night. Now we train down at a school in Orlando, West Oaks Academy, um, which is a school really it's near Pine Hills. It's a school which um, deals with some of the very poorest kids in the community. Um, so. We use their school and we're able to give a huge amount back to them as well and help support the school for these kids that really are very low-income kids. Um, and we've trained the, uh, the dogs to find, at the moment, they find firearms. Um, the reason for that was because some of the schools down in that area have a problem with guns in school. And it's not that the kids are bringing guns into school to use them at school. It's because their journey from the bus to their home is so dangerous that they feel they need something to protect themselves with. But of course we can't have guns in schools. Right. So by having the dogs training in the school um, and have the ability to give them out to schools to search, um, it puts the kids on notice that, hey, there's no point in bringing a gun into this school because there's 12 dogs that will be searching this every week um, and it's going to get found. So. Um, it's a great deterrent for kids bringing guns into schools. And, of course, if, you know, if, if a school has a particular problem, we've got dogs that we can give them free of charge to go out there and find these uh, or search lockers and classrooms and stuff like that. As a spin-off from that, um, we were approached uh, by a professor from uh, Disney. And um, he's uh, one of the world uh, experts in sea turtles. And our affiliation and a relationship with him has led now to the 12 dogs being able to detect sea turtle mucus. Um, there's a problem, um, well, is that a problem? But there's one of the issues, obviously, sea turtles are endangered and need to be protected. Now, most turtles will lay their eggs about you know, 12 to 18 inches below the surface on the beach. The leatherback lays them about three feet down. And he's very, very good. She's an, ex she's an expert at camouflage. So it's very difficult for a human to detect a leatherback nest. But the dog's nose is so um, 
amazingly accurate. They have up to 300 million scent receptors in their nose. We've got 5 million, to give you a comparison. Wow. And so they're able to detect things that we, po- we, we can't possibly. And so we've got these 12 dogs now trained on the mucus that is present in the nest, um, and they will detect that, which means that they can search a lot faster to indicate where the, the leatherback nests are so that they can be cordoned off and protected um, just to help the species to to survive. So that's the first two things. And then in the new year, those 12 dogs are then going to add to their their list of skills um, and they'll be detecting uh, narcotics as well. Okay, very interesting. Well, and and I think that's a, a great service that you'll have available to these schools, the dogs if they need them, and uh, especially poignant when we're facing the fifth anniversary of the Sandy Hook school shootings. Absolutely. You know, if it can dissuade someone from bringing a gun into school, then great. And, and with narcotics, what my experience in England was um, that the kids with the drugs in their locker was often not the drug dealer. Uh, they were the bullied kid. They were the kid that uh, was forced by the drug dealers to, to take all the risks by holding the main stash of drugs. Um, now, if a police dog goes in and finds drugs in a locker, then the person whose locker it is has to get arrested. There's, uh, there's no choice in that matter. Mm-hmm. If a civilian, as I am now, um, searches and we find drugs... We can leave that decision to the principal and the parents, um, and that's that's often a lot better because we want, we need to be careful throwing kids into a criminal justice system who perhaps shouldn't be there because uh, that can really have a, a very traumatic effect on their life, especially if they've been the bullied kid and now they've got a drugs rap and that affects their college chances, it affects their future, their jobs, their employment, every, absolutely everything in their life. So the teachers and parents are normally best placed to see the picture behind the picture. Um, So it it allows us uh, more flexibility than law enforcement who really have their hands tied. Absolutely. One of the questions I'm sure you get a lot, Daryl, is about um, people that want to have their dogs trained as either um, therapy dogs or service dogs. What, What can you tell us about that kind of training? Well, um, again, this is something which really needs regulating, and people have to buyer beware here uh, with regards to service dogs, certainly. Let me explain the difference between there's three types of helper dogs, if you like. Um, The first one is the emotional support dog. The emotional support dog is really a pet um, who has an extra couple of um, advantages to it so if somebody um, really needed their dog um, and people do get very very emotionally attached to their dogs they might have been bereaved and the dog is the last thing they have you know as a memory of perhaps their husband or their wife and they can't live without this dog but they're moving into housing which doesn't allow dogs Um, a doctor's letter will mean that the dog is then classed as an emotional support dog and it's therefore allowed two things. It's allowed to go into housing where other dogs wouldn't be allowed normally, and it's allowed um, to fly on an aircraft, ironically. Um, it can fly on in the cabin of an aircraft. Um, that's the emotional support dog. The therapy dog is a dog that really is for somebody else. 
you feed it and love it and look after it and do all the training for it, and it really is for someone else's benefit. Although, in all honesty, it benefits you as well because there's there's nothing like that feeling that you get when the dog gives so much pleasure to, to other people. Um, so that's the dog which they're allowed to go to places where other dogs aren't allowed, but it is by a prior appointment uh, and with permission. So... Uh, our, our therapy dogs go to um, a hospice, they go to hospitals, um, they'll go to a children's home, schools, so they help kids with reading. But all of those places are by prior engagement and we've already um, formed a relationship with those people so, um, so they know us, they know our dogs and everything else. They're not allowed to go into restaurants or into stores that don't normally accept dogs. And then there's the service dog. The service dog is something that everybody really wants because it's the dog that can. It's the sorry, it's the um, it's the thing that can go everywhere with you. You can take your dog into restaurants, into pretty much everywhere you go. The dog is entitled by law to go. However, there's a lot of people that will pretend that their dog is a service dog, and that's going to get them in hot water now because the law changed recently. Where uh, so here in Florida, it's it's now. Um, a felony, I think you can get up to six months now for pretending your dog is a service dog. To get to have a service dog, you need to have a disability, a handicap, and the dog must do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And that handicap has to be something like a physical disability, blind, hearing impaired, or PTSD. And PTSD, again, it's not just a case of the dog makes you feel better. The dog has to perform a function for you. Now, with service dogs, you can train your own service dog under the law, but it's a bit of a mockery because, let's go back to the IKEA furniture. You know, could we build the cabinet without the instructions? Not really. So a lot of people will say, yes, I train my own service dog, it's my service dog, um, and I'm entitled to go everywhere. And if they have a handicap, in all honesty, the chances the dog actually does anything for them is highly unlikely. The problem is that the, the service dog... Uh, training industry has kind of fixed a price and to get a service dog you have to spend somewhere in the region of twenty to thirty thousand dollars with these companies mm-hmm. and the truth is it doesn't really have to be that way um, we can train dogs for a lot less than that it's just that everybody's doing it and so if they can churn dogs out at twenty thousand thirty thousand each they're going to do that whereas we believe that actually if you do the in-home session, which is for us $349, so two-hour session, as we talked about earlier, you come to the group training, which is 125 for every six weeks, so 2250 a week, get the dog the obedience and the control it's needed, and then we bolt on to, onto that the skills the dog needs to help you. And it comes out vast, vastly lesser, probably on average around 3000 over about a year and a half. Um, so really there's no need for these huge sums. Um, I know certainly of one trainer who has supplied, um, or I know of 15 dogs that have been supplied as, uh, by this person as um, seizure alert dogs for children. $18,000 each, these dogs. Most of the money got from churches and fundraisers and stuff like that. Not one of them has ever alerted to a seizure for a child so it's it's a scam mm-hmm. but nothing's nothing's ever done about it so you know i i believe that training should be affordable for 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 everybody but there has to be a buy-in 
and I believe that service dogs, if they are, they are genuinely needed by somebody, should be affordable as well. So people don't have to try and train their own. And the penalties, um, as they are, because it's a felony now to, um, to pretend to be a handicapped person for the purposes of access for a service dog. Um, that's actually a felony now. But there should be tough penalties and better checks and policing of the whole industry so that people that genuinely need service dogs can get them and they're not bothered by people with fake service dogs who are out of control and, and often aggressive. Sure. The whole industry really needs tying up and regulating, but that was a mammoth task. So we, we've started, you know, by our therapy program, our handlers go through a six-month program. They do three written exams along the way, so we... Um, we will, we we uh, develop the handler as well as the dog. Uh, we have tears and tantrums and stamping of feet and you know. But when they come through it at the other end and they realise how hard they've worked and how good they are and how good their dog is, everyone says it was absolutely worth it. You know, I'm committed to actually raising the bar as far as standards go for therapy dogs. I know that. Every one of my therapy dogs can go anywhere at all and not let me down, not let the handler down, and not get themselves into trouble. Um, you know, really, I've always tried to make perfection a kite mark of excellence, um, and the therapy program's the same. And it would be nice to have standards brought in so that trainers have to um, comply with those standards, because then the users are the winners. Right, right. I have a client, um, Daryl, who... Um, paid $18,000 for an 11-month-old dog who presumably had 1,100 hours of training at 11 months of age, and it was a complete scam, and the dog has more disabilities than the, uh, than the person with the disability. Absolutely. And, and see, these people should be brought to book because it's, it's not fair. It really isn't. I've got... Um, a couple actually called me. I was, um, I do a slot on Real Radio once a month with Jim Phillips on the Phillips file. And oh, uh-huh. Some, someone called uh, called in one day and said, you know, I've, I want a service dog. And I said, listen, give us give us a call off air and we'll talk about it. And um, it was their daughter. And she has about eight to ten seizures a day. Um, and he said, I just don't know how I'm going to get this money. So I said, well, listen, do yourself a favour, go and get, you know, we, we talked about their family and their, you know, a, a golden retriever was going to be the best option for this. Go and get, get a golden retriever um, as a puppy. I told them everything to do with the pup, bond with it, the most important thing, bond it with your daughter. So she, she bonds absolutely with this dog. Um, and then we'll, we'll do the in-home and, you know, for the puppy, come along to the group training and then, you know, we'll see where we go from there. Well, they did everything I said. They came to the group training, and they're still there, actually. They're still there. And um, the dog is already, um, it's now 12 months old. It's um, indicating her seizures purely because the dog knows the child. When you, If you're training a dog to be a seizure alert dog, you cannot train it outside of the person who's going to be the, the user of it because the dog needs to get to know the person. Sure. So... This dog is already doing it, and they, you know they haven't paid. They've paid a fraction of what they would have paid, and they've got the dog, and the dog is performing the function naturally, uh, purely because the dog is bonded and loves this child, um, and they have this 
sixth sense is actually a, a scientific thing that goes on in their in their nose where they they detect uh, emotion it's the hormones and stuff like that they know if someone is aggressive they know if someone is sad they know if someone is sick um, and it works on that level and the dog is indicating already without them paying thousands and thousands which they couldn't afford right um, so you know there needs to be there needs to be some stiff penalties and some checking up on these trainers that are throwing these seizure alert dogs out. And, yeah, you know, 1,100 hours for an 11-month-old dog is, is just nonsensical, isn't it? No, and I, I think, and in, in someday you'll meet her, I'm sure, but I think she spent that 11 months in a crate. Um, and she has a lots of emotional issues herself. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. They're little money boxes. That's all they are. It's yep. abuse. Pure and simple, it's absolute abuse. You know, it's like the overbreeding of dogs and everything else. It's in the same bracket. They're using these dogs as money-making, just little ATM machines without thought for the for the dog. You know, I've been to three dogs from this uh, this person who was giving out the seizure alert dogs, which is how I came across it. Um, and every single one of them, the problem was the dog was fear-aggressive and wouldn't leave the house. Oh, my goodness. So goodness knows, you know, how they were being brought up, but... You know, these were crushed animals, and it's it's abuse, pure and simple. Yes, absolutely. Well, I could spend all day um, talking to you, and there's lots more that we could continue to talk about. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you to the listeners of All My Children Wear Fur Coats on Pet Will Radio. If you want more information about Daryl and his training program, you can find him at pawfectiondogtraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook at All My Children Wear Fur Coats or on Twitter at Kids in Fur Coats. We'll be happy to answer your questions and get you in touch with Daryl. Daryl? Thanks again, and that was such good advice. I am so inspired. I can't wait to sign up for the puppy class. It's my pleasure, and we look forward to seeing you, Peggy. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day, and uh, to our listeners, we will see you next week at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Pet Will Radio. Until then, please adopt one, and happy tails. See you next week. Thank you for joining us on Pet Will Radio. Visit PetWillRadio.com for updates on shows, links to previous shows, inspirational stories, videos, and more. Until next time, take care.